0: Welcome to the Partial Historians. We explore all the details of ancient Rome. Everything from the political scandals, the love affairs, the battles waged, and when
1: citizens turn against each other. I'm Dr. Rad. And I'm Dr. G. We consider Rome as the Romans saw it by reading different authors from the ancient past and comparing their stories. Join us as
0: we trace the journey of Rome from the founding of the city.
1: Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of The Partial Historians. I am Dr G and sitting beside me looking radiant I'm in my purple. It's Dr. Rad.
0: I'm keen to get into talking about the history of Rome from the founding of the city.
1: And you're wearing your imperial colours today. I totally am. (laughs) I go all out
0: when I record because, you know, podcasting is such a visual medium. It is. It it really is. It really is.
1: (laughs) So, Dr. G, where were we up to last time? Last time we were in the depths of 446 BCE and it seemed like Rome was facing some uh, conflict around their borders. It seemed like the Aquians and the Volscii had gotten together, as they often do, Mm. and were starting to pillage the lands of the Latin people. Historically, the Latin people have been allied with Rome for quite some time now. And so obviously this is a problem for Rome because if it can't protect its allies, why does it even exist? Exactly.
0: And of course, being Rome, they totally kicked us. They had a fantastic
1: beginning to 446. And but at the same time there seems to be this ongoing issue, at least in our literary sources with Livy and Dionysius of Halicarnassus, that there is this sort of class warfare going on. Oh, definitely. The struggle of the orders. Yes. And to some degree, this might be a sort of a a retrojection back to try and understand what's happening with the layers of early society. We're not really sure. But nevertheless, it does dominate the things that they tell us about this period of time. Definitely. Yes, we're still definitely in the
0: throes of dealing with the impact of the introduction of this codification of the laws with the 12 tables, the December, whether that was a first and second December, we're still dealing with the impact of that. And I think the the power vacuum or just just a general impact on society that that episode has created, even though some historians doubt that this actually happened in the way that they say it did. There's obviously something going on in this time period, and so we're definitely stealing this. I mean, we've, we've flagged this before, but it probably bears repeating that Rome, from the archaeological record, does seem to have been going through a real slump In this period. Now, archaeology isn't a precise science. Obviously, we are bound very much by what has happened to survive, which generally is a total accident. But if we're going by things like temples, which are usually pretty substantial, I mean, even if the temple itself has disappeared, the foundations are hard to get rid of because they're so heavy and, you know, they're obviously large scale. So judging by that, we don't have a lot of temple building happening in the middle of this century and we don't also have a lot of things like imported attic ware and so on and that has led historians and archaeologists to believe that things probably weren't peachy keen in the middle of this century.
1: Yeah, if you don't have enough spare population, as it were, to engage in, like, uh, long-form trade where you have to cross the seas to find things and stuff to bring it back so everybody's excited. Yes. um, Your version of the internet... And if you don't have enough uh, sort of free people to do building and to gain the sort of the manufacturing stuff that you need for that, you've got to collect the stones, you've got to find a way to quarry them, you've got to transport them, and then you've got to have people with a skill set to build them. If you're under pressure from all sides, as it seems like Rome might be, which might also explain why we get the Desiree in the first place, because of that pressure, Russia definitely um, to find a way to look after themselves and they're like well the system that we've got isn't working we need to try something different maybe a little bit more extreme yes then we end up with something potentially that looks like the kind of dog's breakfast (laughs) that is the 440s BCE absolutely so even though there are some high points like what what we were
0: talking about last time with their military victories they're obviously still I think a society going through a tough time And with that being said Dr. Lee, let's jump into our next part of the story. So I know that you're getting into very patchy territory with Dionysius and Halicarnassus, which puts me in a very uncomfortable position because I'm so used to you having a plethora of detail.
1: Well, I mean, I've got some things for you. I mean, today, this episode, I think this, we're going to be covering what, uh, the tail end of 446 Indeed. and probably a good chunk, if not all of 445. Yes, absolutely. And I've got great things for that. But, yes, warning, dear listeners, we've got some rocky times ahead with Dionysus of Halicarnassus. He breaks off at the end of this book. We're currently in book 11. He breaks off into fragments from this point onwards and doesn't really make a comeback for a good long time. Absolutely. (laughs)
0: Well, let me tell you what I've got for the tail end of 446, which sounds like something fairly small, but it does actually sort of have a few reverberations that we'll be coming back to over the next uh, year or so. So, end of 446. Totally switching gears from the military stuff we were talking about last time. Rome is called in to serve as a judge, essentially, for a case of uh, a boundary dispute. So there are these two places, Aricia and Ardea, which are both towards the south of Rome. uh, But one of them lies in Volscian territory and the other one is more in Latin territory. Okay, So they've been fighting because they're quite close to each other. And they've been fighting to the point now where they're just exhausted, they need someone to make a decision, and so they say, Hey, how about Rome? Let's head there and see what they have to say about this. So, the magistrates gave both the cities, of course, the chance to talk before the popular assembly. Both sides are incredibly passionate. Of course, they've been you know duking it out for who knows how long by this stage. And the tribes are then summoned to vote. So the tribes are a way that Roman society was allegedly organized in this particular time period. And it's often a way that they they use to cast things like votes. Okay. As they get ready to do this, an old plebeian gets up to speak. A guy called Publius Scaptius, which sounds Ooh. really gross to me. Ooh. <laughs> yeah.
1: No, I don't want Scaptius to take me out on a date.
0: <laughs> no, I mean, I'm going to be really really gross right now but it sounds a bit like pubic scabs to me oh yeah (laughs) but you know that's probably how the patricians think of the plebeians. so let's just go with that imagery (laughs) so he gets up to speak he's very concerned that Rome is going to make the wrong decision in this case the consuls tell him to shut the hell up (laughs) What, what is he talking about they're like you we know you you're not to be trusted
1: Oh, well, yeah, with a name like (laughs) Scaptius. Yeah,
0: exactly. He, of course, is insulted. And he says, hey, the public cause is being betrayed. And the consuls want him to be dragged out. And he, of course, says, hey, Tribune of the Plebs, can you do something about that? I don't really want to be dragged out of this assembly. I want to say my piece. The tribunes, according to Livy, are normally swayed by the opinion of the crowd. Now, I think that is something that Livy is casting in there, coming from the sort of more elite perspective. I mean, obviously the tribunes do have to care about what the people think. That's kind of their job. But at the same time, I'm like, come on, Livy, let's...
1: It sounds like a bit of a snide remark from Livy.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So they decide that they're going to allow Scaptius to say what he wanted to because the plebs want him to stay. So, of course, they have totally done what Livy said, which is just gone. Whatever the plebeians want is what the plebeians get. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a tribune. <laughs> exactly. So, the Scaptius is apparently 82 years old. Very precise, I know, yes. He, being a plebeian of his age, had served in the army, of course, you know what you would expect. And he had been serving for a really long time. Like, he's obviously served on and off throughout his entire life.
1: Wow, and he's made it to 82. That is incredibly impressive.
0: Exactly. I mean, no wonder he's probably a bit of a crank by this point (laughs) in time. (laughs) So he had been serving for 20 years at the time of the campaign of the Corioli. Okay, and this is where there had been an issue with disputed territory, which had been part of the Corioli, um, but had been given to the Romans when they conquered that area. And he was stunned that Ardea and Aricia were now trying to apparently take this territory from the Roman people, like as being part of their, you know, their thing. So Scaptius is saying, look, I'm an old man now. I can't really fight this out on the battlefield.
1: I've seen some things. (laughs) If I were 20 years younger... When Coriolanus was (laughs) alive, this would never have happened.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So he's using his voice, his only remaining weapon, to defend this territory. The consuls are horrified to see that the crowd are quite impressed by this speech. They're apparently dead silent. (laughs) They're
1: loving it. (laughs) Yeah,
0: they're lapping it up. And they're like, what? I had no idea what is going on here. So they summoned all the leaders of the Senate. And they all went around to the tribes and asked them not to be guilty of making like a terrible decision where they like take this territory from these people or something along those lines. They're like, look, you might gain this territory back, but you're going to really alienate our allies. So maybe not such a great idea? Maybe. And they're like, it might make Scaptius famous for making this speech. But Rome will become well known for being an utter disgrace and we don't really want that. Meanwhile,
1: Scapius is on another box being like, it's our land. <laughs> I'm telling him I gave my blood, sweat and tears when I was a young man. I fought for that land and it's ours. The only
0: thing that's missing is for him to tear open... <laughs> his clothes and show the scars on his body
1: that one i got an ardea yeah, that's right this one a reach
0: <laughs> look at my pecs i can make them
1: dance
0: <laughs> yeah so even though the consuls and the senators argue hard against what Scaptius is saying greed descends over the roman people like an evil green fog And they decide that the best way to solve this situation is for Rome to take the territory.
1: (laughs) Classic.
0: Yeah. And I don't think I need to say this, but I'm going to throw it in there because Livy says it.
1: The people
0: of Aricia and Ardea are not best pleased (laughs) by this decision.
1: Yeah, no, Look. fair enough.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So that's something that will come back, even though it seems like a very minor border dispute. Obviously, with Rome being relatively close to these neighbours and one of the cities being, you know, inside the territory of Latium, it makes sense that it's going to have some reverberations throughout the, the area. Yes, yeah. I think
1: it's very safe to say that this decision by Rome appears to be quite selfish and will have consequences.
0: Yeah, I mean, particularly I would imagine for Eritia um, Ar- is the one that's in the territory of Latium, Adea is more... It's a Dea
1: is considered like its own people. Exactly, They're considered yeah. quite unique and individual, and they're on the shoreline, so they've got their own ability to have like a port system and stuff like that. Yeah. It's an attractive area, but they don't consider themselves Latins at all. No, no, exactly.
0: They're, they're definitely closer to like Volskian territory, so, indeed. But the rest of 446 is peaceful
1: inside
0: and out, so <laughs> we're ending on a high note there. <laughs> and that is
1: 446.
0: It is. So let's dive straight into... 445 BCE. Brand
1: new year, and that means brand new
0: consuls. Indeed. I have one M Genucius down as one of my consuls. Oh ah, yes. A, a patrician.
1: I have yes, Marcus Genucius, don't know his father, don't know his grandfather, yep. or Garinus, Yep, the patrician. There seems to be some speculation in some uh, material that this might be a plebeian, but that seems pretty unlikely, we have to say. Well, I mean, this is one of the things that
0: we're, t- we're dealing with, with the Conflict of the Orders. Throughout this period of the even the 450s, before we got into the December and the Twelve Tables and all that sort of thing. There have been some unusual names cropping up in the consulship. And certainly, as you say, some academics have theorised that this might be evidence of plebeians in in the consulship. And... Obviously, we, we can't know for sure, but I agree with you. I think it seems unlikely at this stage.
1: It is a bit tough to know. Obviously, there is... The reason why people think that this is possible is because there ends up being a plebeian line of ganukii. Yes. But having said that, We don't have a full post-repography that allows us to go back to this particular century. Yeah. So when we talk about post-repography, we're talking about, like, the relationships between all of the people. So we can't trace that thoroughly. No. Because we can't do that, that does leave it a little bit open. And the fact that we're getting such a a heavy uh, literary perspective that this conflict is ongoing... Yes. um, And the sort of things that they're going to say in later years about this period would suggest that we're dealing still with patricians.
0: Yeah, and I mean, it, I mean, this is kind of rehashing a little bit of where we've been before, but certainly it probably bears mentioning again that part of the ongoing issue of studying this alleged conflict of the orders, which spans a couple of hundred years, is, as you said, obviously our sources are written so much later. They're writing from a, a very different perspective in terms of what they've gone through in terms of you know land issues and debt issues, and they can't help it sometimes, I'm sure retroject that onto this period, especially because the sources that they're using wouldn't necessarily... They weren't also written at this exact time. So there's obviously a lot of speculation that's probably coming from them and and their levels of interpretation. But certainly this division between patricians and plebeians is something that they might be also playing up because it makes sense to them. And it might not have played out the way that they're saying, I mean, we've always flagged, like, who exactly are the patricians? We still don't really know where these patricians come from. Were they people that were hand-picked by Romulus to
1: be his advisors? Is that what it means to be a patrician? Are there people that were chosen as the original senators and, and thus their families get to be patrician? We don't know,
0: really. We, yeah, exactly. We really don't know. And so, especially in this early period it is hard to know who was allowed to do what and there are more social divisions than just patrician and plebeians that we're talking about here there's also the division between these this group called the patres and the conscripti when we're talking about you know the senate you know the, the people who are the fathers and those who are enrolled who are they what exactly does that mean <laughs> there's also the people that are, you know are uh, classici and infraclassen. like there's these these divisions seemingly on who could serve in the army and that's what those groups are referring to we we don't really know how these groups exactly were playing out and how the patricians developed into being this particular social group and how the plebeians developed into being their particular social group so it's possible plebeians had a more prominent role at some point in the early republic but it is all very speculative and we can only sort of go on this division which has been played up by our later sources
1: and on that note... <laughs> Indeed, sorry, that was a very long side, side note. No, either. no, but yeah. it was very important and <laughs> I enjoyed it. Um, on that note, we have a second consul and I'm pretty sure that Dionysius of Halicarnassus gets the details wrong on this one. He calls this person Gaius Quintius. Ooh, yes, now I have him
0: down as Caius Curtius. Mm. Yeah, and he yeah. also apparently is a patrician, but again... Don't really know a lot about him either.
1: We don't and so and this makes sense in some respects because we're dealing with this we're only a few years out from the end of the December realistically yes and we've got a whole sort of sort of fresh flush of people coming into the consulship yes and that seems to be one of the consequences of that particular instability. Well that's something
0: that we again we probably should mention in terms of who we can trace in terms of patrician families. Scholars have actually gone back through using the records that the fasti, the records of the consuls, as a way of trying to figure out exactly how large this group allegedly (laughs) called the patricians were. And I mean, their estimates range from anywhere from sixteen to 114 families. Which, even if we accept that upper limit of 114 patrician families, that's not a lot of people. And so that sounds like a huge amount of people. it's hu- I don't think it's huge, you know. Like it's not gigantic. And so, if you do have a whole bunch of people that have been, you know, exiled and disgraced, like that's a that's a reasonable dent, I think, in in a group of potentially 114. Most academics, I think, are more thinking in the sort of you know maybe 50s to 70s. So that's like looking at the very upper limit. So yeah, it wouldn't surprise me to see some some new people rising to the top after the it and all of that kind of thing. Even though some people say the Decembrite didn't happen.
1: <laughs> wow. Lies. Stand Lies. According to our sources, it definitely did happen. And Indeed. that's what we're running with. So we've got two new consuls. And we also have, at least Dionysius is telling us, that this is the moment where the plebeians start to demand that all Romans be permitted to hold the consulship. Mm. And that that's the first tell that Genucius has to be a patrician because I don't know that they would argue for that straight away unless both of the consuls were patricians yeah so this kind of sets the scene that this is going to be a bit of a problem on the domestic front yeah um we've gotten through all of these sort of controversial moments but now the plebeian's like no we demand an equal share yeah. in that highest level magistracy yeah one of them should be us
0: well, this is, this is interesting in terms of trying to trace the development of the conflict of the orders, because if we recall, the major issue that seemed to be facing a lot of people in Rome and its you know, surrounding countryside areas, <laughs> villa with a view, was debt and land allotment. And yet, the more that we've got caught up in the December and the Twelve Tables, Whilst there are some things that indicate that that's a little bit on the radar, you know, to a certain extent, mostly it does seem to be about, to have shifted to something where it's about authority and who holds power in Roman society. Because that's that's the whole point of getting the laws codified, right? That the patricians seem to have this dominant, like by this stage of the Republic, you know, from about the 480s on, they seem to have been acquiring more domination of religious officers and political officers. It's this phenomenon which some academics term the closing of the patriciate. Now, I'm not saying that I necessarily see that as, you know, definitely happening, but certainly they seem to have acquired a huge amount of, you know, octaritas and authority and knowledge, which they're not widely sharing because it's a way of holding on to their power and authority in that society. Of
1: course. And you get this... I mean, the thing is that it perpetuates itself, doesn't it? Exactly. once you have somebody in a position of authority, they've learnt all about that. Yes. And then... The next step is, well, we have to choose somebody else to come into the role. And they're like, well, why don't you choose my son? Because I've taught him everything that I know. And they're like, well, he will be very suitable because he's already well trained. Exactly. And so this becomes something that just manifests through generations. Then you kind of get locked into, well, my father's always done this. And so this is the path that I have to take as well. And you've got all of those advantages of... When you think about the comparison today, I would say the comparison is something like being a first generation scholar. Yeah. uh, Where it's like, you don't know the ropes, you don't know the administration, you don't know how universities really work. No. And it makes the whole thing really challenging. Somebody who comes from a family, a line of academics, is going to go into that space feeling pretty comfortable and maybe not realizing that for a long time but they've got all of this hidden advantage through people having given them advice telling them how to apply how to get through how to do this how to do that and all of that makes it much easier for them to succeed and so they rise to the top and so you get this sort of sense in which this is happening in Rome where those positions are being filled by those people and then being filled by their relatives. Yes. And it just becomes ingrained on a generational level. And then once that happens for a little while, I think people who end up being classified as patricians probably feel like they deserve those roles.
0: Absolutely. They definitely <laughs> do. And especially because the Romans, like a lot of people take the religious aspect so of their lives so seriously, having that sacred aspect to their their role the way that they seem to dominate priesthoods and all those sorts of positions in society makes them very hard to argue with for the average person who's maybe just a farmer or something like that and
1: be like well i'd love to be able to read the birds as well as you do Ah, but son you never will yeah (laughs) because you're not an (laughs) augur
0: exactly and so you do have you do have this interesting development where we start to look at the Plebeians apparently demanding these political rights which is not really where we started with this journey and indeed they're going to get those political rights long before the issues of land and debt are resolved so that's where you can see as we've often flagged that divide that's potentially springing up in this group that we're going to call the plebeians whoever they are but certainly there do seem to be these people who are Comfortable enough that political representation is important to them, because they're not worrying about feeding their families. Yeah, or something.
1: I mean they've got enough time to fight for their rights. Yeah. So that's significant, I think.
0: Yeah, and it could it could also be a sign that may, I mean maybe land and debt maybe they aren't actually such issues in this time period. I mean some some academics have suggested that maybe this is something that is a little bit retrojected, you know, from from the sources themselves. Maybe you know if, if the plebeians are wealthy enough to fight in the Roman army, then they have to have a certain amount of wealth. Maybe it isn't as much of an issue as our sources made it out originally. Who knows? It's it's hard to it's hard to trace the development, but definitely. There is another aspect though that Dionysius leaves out completely. Oh. Which Livy includes. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. How do you know? (laughs) I know. Well see this is the thing. Livy's account, it actually doesn't start with the demand for access to the consulship. It starts off with one of the tribunes of the plebs, a guy called Gaius
1: Canuleus or Canulius. Oh, Yeah. yeah. I think our order of information comes through differently.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It starts out in Livy with the suggestion from this tribune that they overturn the very unpopular law from the 2nd December about the ban on intermarriage between patricians and plebeians. So that's where he actually starts out, and that is where the cons- the demand for the consulship also gets brought in second in Livy's account. Ooh, fascinating. Yeah, yeah, look,
1: I mean, Cannulus comes up in Dionysius of Halicarnassus, but he does not mention the marriage issue, as uh, far as I'm aware. No, that, 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 that's <laughs> a big difference
0: between Dionysius and Livy. Um, so he brings this up, and the patricians are really unhappy with this suggestion that patricians and plebeians be allowed to intermarry. They say... Gross. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I'm going to have to pick up my champagne glass and caviar to say this, Dr. G. They say it would lead to a complete debasement of the patrician bloodlines. Oh! Yes. okay. Quite frankly, it would completely sabotage and destabilise the very innate qualities that are inside each family. The Ghentis.
1: Okay, I'm just going to vomit over in this <laughs> corner.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I did provide a bucket earlier this morning. You might have been wondering what that was oh, for. Yeah. Thank you, thank yeah. you, I appreciate it. <laughs> Sorry, excuse me, I just have to put down the caviar and champagne. And I'm me again. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Alright, so I mean, even if we, if we're taking both or even just one of these as the sort of first suggestion for the year... Uh, I think we can agree uh, that the Senate is not best pleased with these suggestions. Certainly they react very badly to the idea that they would open up the consulship to all Romans, and by all Romans, in brackets, means plebeians. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And and this is, again, another
0: subtlety which is going to be hard to, to deal with because Livy, in particular, I think it does have a tendency to use Senate and patricians interchangeably, like they're one and the same thing. But again... The Senate in this time period, it is hard to know exactly how significant it was. The Senate obviously becomes hugely important to Rome later on. And certainly, therefore, our sources make it quite important in our accounts. But this is still fairly early Republic. The Senate's decisions are not... They haven't acquired the same binding quality that they're going to have later in Rome's history.
1: No. At the moment, they're an advisory body. And they will go on being a sort of a tacit advisory body for a long period of time without any sort of legislative backup in any way. Mm. But it's considered socially appropriate to talk to the Senate about things. Mm. And the Senate is also made up of ex-consuls. That's one of the features of them. So Mm. if you hold the consulship you immediately go on, if you hadn't been in the Senate before, Mm. you immediately were granted access to be a Senate member after you had left your consulship. So there's a way in which the senatorial body populates itself with the highest magistracy that has been created in the Republic. Yeah. And that's one of the things that it does. You can add people to the Senate in different ways. Yes. Um, And that happens in various moments in Rome's history Mm. but that sort of like funnel effect of like taking the the top guys each year and being like guess what if you weren't in the senate before you're now in the senate yes is is one of these things that they do but the senate I mean that seems to be like a bit of a problem as well when you think about numbers because they're only supposed to be so big as a group so you can't just keep adding two every year yes (laughs) Um, so how big is this group? How do people get left out of the Senate? We're not really sure. It's all a little bit obscure.
0: It is. And there's also been quite strong arguments, I think, that the Senate wasn't necessarily all patricians. <gasps> I know. I mean, but was it? <laughs> well, it? It seems obviously likely that it would be weighted that way. But again, this, this reference to the partres and the conscripti, the fathers and those who are enrolled it doesn't rule out the possibility that potentially at some point in the early republic there were plebeians in the Senate. Not entirely. I mean, again, you have to follow certain lines of argument where maybe you think the plebeians served as magistrates or whatever. But it is possible, and certainly the plebeians don't ever seem to fight for admission to the Senate, that they fight for admission to priesthoods, to consulships and that sort of thing. And sure, you could argue that that's obviously their route into the Senate. But it is interesting to just flag that Livy very specifically says the patricians are unhappy about this, not the Senate. The, uh, pa- the patricians are unhappy about this. Yeah,
1: Dionysius of Palicanassus tells us that the Senate is offended. By yeah, them? well, I'm sure they are. As I say, <laughs> it stands to
0: reason that the Senate are a heavily patrician body at this mm-hmm. point in time. But as I say, that's accepting that. The divide is as clear as we say it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. I think both. Uh, yeah, I think Livy and Dionysius are both assuming that we're dealing with a patriciate senate
0: for sure, um, yeah. which, which I which I agree is logical,
1: which would make sense. Yeah, or at least I mean, you know,
0: say if we even. Do away with the terms. Very upper class, obviously. Yeah, we're talking about the elite, obviously. Yeah, I mean, who who has time to sit around and just advise all day long?
1: <laughs> I mean, I'll do it for a fee. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. You and I are working class, baby. <laughs>
1: Damn it. Um, so while this is kind of like the initial setup for this year, yeah. things take a pretty quick turn. Uh, Rome has to do a bit of a, a whiplash moment where they're like, whoa, didn't see that coming, but they should have. The Aquii and the Volscians are starting to come against the Latin and Hanusian Roman allies with large armies. So it's like an ongoing sort of warfare situation where every campaign year, for the last few, the Aquians and the Volscii are like, What up? We're here to invade. And everyone's like, Not again. (laughs)
0: Rome, can you help us? Help and... me, Rome, You're my only hope. <laughs>
1: <Exactly. laughs> I, I put on,
0: I put on uh, my my twirly braids, yeah, <laughs> for that one. Well, and this is the thing in Livy. Again, this is where the layers come in. So not only have we got issues with the Volskians and the Aquians, but apparently the men of Ve were mm-hmm. also ravaging land on the Roman frontiers. Dionysius says tick to that. Yes, excellent. <laughs> and and this is why I wanted to do. That other thing from 446 in this episode, there's also a revolt in Ardea after the stupid decision that the Romans made, which took their well, what they see as their land from them. Oh, yes. yes.
1: Yes, Dionysius agrees with that as well. Basically, Rome is now dealing with potential war on all fronts. Yeah, so this is, <laughs> this is a really tense moment
0: because we've got... The plebeians are apparently kicking off, and, and some tribunes who appear to be able to lead them, you know, with quite a lot of passion. And therefore, the patricians are furious because they're convinced that they're just trying to take away their most powerful asset and give all the power to the plebeians. So internally, it's a mess. Externally, it's going nuts! <laughs> it's warfare, 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 it's wherever you look.
1: Yeah, so this is a huge issue for Rome. Obviously, the Senate decides reasonably that Rome has to go to war. Yes, um, there's too many things happening in too many different directions Absolutely. for us to just sit here and allow ourselves to be overrun. Yeah, the tribunes immediately oppose this. Of course <laughs> they do. Of course they do. This includes Gaius Furnius and yes. Canulius, who yep. will come up later. Yeah, um, but this group of tribunes are like, there is just no way that we're going to accept this. And the Senate does its usual. But let's just wait till the war is over to talk about that stuff that you're worried about. The tribunes are like, no, no. What we would like you to do is we'd like you to have a preliminary decree ratified. So we want a first step towards getting the plebeians into the consulship. We want that set up first. We don't have to finalize it, but there needs to be a preliminary decree before we will allow the levy to happen.
0: This is very interesting, actually. It, it really, I think, highlights that whilst Dionysius and Livy have certain similarities, I, I would say they're using different analysts for the way that this plays out, because it's, it, it's, it's similar, but there are those interesting differences. So certainly... Very very similar to you, to what you have, um, Cornelius is the one that takes the lead for me in opposing what the, have, what the Senators have demanded. And, of course, the Senators are just, like, pulling their hair out because they're like, do you not see warfare, like, in every direction? <laughs> I can't believe
1: you are even... You in know we're going with... to be overrun while you argue about this, yeah. don't you? <laughs>
0: I just like the fact, I just have to mention that uh, in my account, Cornelius says that as long as he lived, the levy would never be held until the plebeians had voted on the question of overturning the ban on intermarriage.
1: Over my dead body, my sacrosanct, you can't touch me, dead body. Yeah, but I feel like that's a very risky move because I'm
0: pretty sure that the senator, the well, not, I shouldn't say the senators, the patricians have shown in the past that they're not always above violating sacrosanctity if we assume that that even is a thing.
1: That might actually form a nice parallel or contrast. I'll mm. let you let listeners decide. Yeah for this very odd passage from Dionysus of Calicanassus. It was so odd that I actually reached out to scholars of friends of mine to be like, what do you make of this? I'll read it out. The translation is is a little bit off, but we'll go with it. Yeah. Uh, so this is about the tribunes. And they were so far carried away that they thus threatened the consuls, not only in the Senate, nature in the in the assembly of the people, swearing the oath which to them is the most binding... Namely, by their good fortune to the end, that they might not be at liberty to revoke any of their decisions, even if convinced of their error. So, I mean, that sounds like a really bungled passage. And it is. But this idea that there is a particular kind of oath that they can make that is so strong that it cannot be revoked under any circumstances.
0: It's like uh, the harry potter Earth that Sarah snape and narcissa malfoy make
1: <laughs> so strong it yeah. cannot be undone um <laughs> that they are like okay this is how strongly we're willing to go into that for this particular progression of political enfranchisement mm. of the plebeians yeah that we're going to make the most binding oaths that we possibly can in this moment. Wow. It is very intense. There yeah. is quite a bit of retrojection going on here. I say it obviously say so. That doesn't sound right. <laughs> well, it comes from the... Obviously, Dionysus of Halicarnassus is writing in Greek. Yeah. Uh, but I was having a chat to Dr. Andrew Pettinger, okay. who wrote a really amazing book on Tiberius, Ooh. incidentally. Hello. <laughs> and it was talking about, like, what do you make of this passage? And he was like, look, things like the term the good fortune. Mm -hmm. We're talking about something that's coming out of the Latin, but is coming out in the Latin in, like, the first century. Sure. And and then being pushed back and retrojected in. So it's, like, this sense in which Dionysus of Halicarnassus is trying to make sense of stuff through his own worldview, really quite particularly here. Sure, yeah. But the upshot of it is the tribunes have placed themselves in a really binding position Mm -hmm. by taking this particular oath. Right. And so... The consuls have to, and the Senate, have to think about what it is that they're going to do to combat this, because they're they're getting wedged right now. Sure. And I don't, I'd love to hear what Livy has to say about this, but in Dionysius, the consuls decide to organise to have a private meeting with some senior patricians. Ooh,
0: okay, okay. I can see where we're going here, but I need to back up a little bit before I get to that point. Okay. So, Livy really focuses a lot more on the overturning of the intermarriage.
1: Doesn't even get a mention. <laughs> I know. Well, look, there's a reason for that,
0: which as we, if we throw back to the 12 tables, as we highlighted, this very unpopular, well, I mean, allegedly very unpopular law, certainly had a bad reputation in, in our later sources, that apparently banned marriage between patrician and plebeians. Now... It came in the 2nd December, it's one of the two laws that they managed to produce while they were, you know, trying to rape innocent women, and the 2nd December is the one that is questioned the most in terms of our, you know, in, our, in terms of modern scholarship. Now, you and I both believe that if it's recorded, there must be some basis in what was going on, for, you know, for that to have been recorded in, in some way, but certainly... I don't think you and I would be, you know, be bold enough to say we can definitely say you know who drafted what laws, etc. Anyway, we've got this law banning the marriage. Now, it is an interesting ban because scholars have tried to explain it in lots of different ways in terms of if you look back in the history of the early republic, there does seem to have been intermarriage between patricians and plebeians. So if we use an example that we would have referred to earlier, if we think of that Roman hero, Cincinnatus, the name mentioned in our sources of his wife, Rachilia, or Racilia, depending on how you want to pronounce it, it suggests that she may have been plebeian. We can't obviously be 100% sure, but there there are a couple of examples that we can cite where there does seem to have been intermarriage. And certainly, if the plebeians is this rather motley crew where you've got some people who are wealthier and they just for some reason don't have the same status as the patricians because part of the status of the patricians might have come from the fact that they monopolized priesthoods it might have nothing to do with how snooty or how many ferraris they have in the garage (laughs) there could have been some intermarriage going on before this point anyway to get back to now apparently in livy's version the patricians at this point in time are dead against it and they talk a lot about this idea of contamination of the Gentes, okay, of, of their family qualities. This is sounding
1: quite eugenicist.
0: It is a little bit. I know. It's, it's a bit creepy from our modern point of view. But they're, they're certainly talking about that that innate quality that their families have developed. You know, and we, we've talked <laughs> about this before as well, like how certain families are associated with certain... Character traits, or you know, positions, or all that sort of thing. Yeah. So there's that, but most particularly, they feel that it's going to be a problem for the auspices, which is something that does seem to have been a patrician prerogative, even if we go back into the regal period. Mm. So this is a certain type of um, it's basically like reading reading signs in the natural world, particularly particularly the movement of birds. Yeah, particularly the movement of birds. Absolutely. And they think that, it, that essentially if patricians weren't doing this, because this is their right, it's something they've done for decades by this point in time, maybe centuries, who knows, um, but certainly decades, it would throw everything out and this would be a huge issue for Rome because if you throw out the relationship with the heavens and the ability to, to take note of these sorts of issues, it's going to mean massive problems for the state. So yeah, that's yeah. one of the things that they throw out there. They also say that if there is this contamination happening within families, it means that men would not know who they were. They would lose all sense of identity and family. They're weird to us, we'd be on the fritz. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, the consuls point out that patrician in marriages could only lead to one thing, Dr. G, and that's children. <laughs> That is children. Oh, oh God. I mean, why else? Well, (laughs) hurry. Why else would you be getting married if not to produce children and a child that is half and half, that child would be lost,
1: lost, caught between these two worlds. (laughs) Only half able to read the auspices. Yeah. (laughs) Only being able to be a half (laughs) consul. This is terrible. They couldn't drive a Ferrari. They'd have to drive something. I don't know. A Porsche! A Porsche! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, well, alright. Yeah, and they
0: blame blame themselves, as they often do in my account, that this whole situation has been able to unfold because of them giving the plebeians so much power in the past, they really have themselves to blame. The tribunes again, causing trouble. Why did they allow the tribunes to be created? You know, it's the usual woe is me, where the patricians are like, oh, so foolish.
1: (laughs) I mean, if you didn't listen to any other episode apart from this one i think you can rest assured that the patricians are terrible they really are yeah so the consoles are really
0: really going to town on this whole issue and and look modern academics have tried to make sense of it by saying that maybe the band was actually between certain People, So it wasn't all plebeians that were like ruled out. Maybe it was just some people that were ruled out or maybe it was referring to a particular type of marriage. So, as we know, because patricians in this time period were often associated with priesthoods and la-la-la, and just because they do have certain privileges associated with them, it was more common for them to engage in this very holy, serious binding form of marriage, like a a manus marriage, which is really where the woman essentially becomes totally part of her husband's family, almost like a child. Yeah, Yeah, the
1: conferatio marriage is a very particular and goes on to be a very sacred type of marriage. And ends up, in the end, only being performed by people who are looking to go into those very niche priesthoods. Yeah. But, yeah, this is also a problem of another thing that we don't really know from this time period is, well, how is marriage operating? And, and this is the problem. <laughs> what type of is marriage all... do we have?
0: Yeah, and this is exactly the issue. This is all quite theoretical because... By the time Livy and Dionysius are writing, it's much more common for people to get married using Sine-minus, yeah, as in without the hand, which basically means that the woman, while she does have obligations to her husband, she's still not really a part of his family. Yeah,
1: she technically still resides under the the of her natal family exactly so yeah she she's ruled by the family that she was born into not her husband's family whereas if you get married with the hand you move entirely into your husband's family and you move under that potestas yeah so it's a whole different thing either way but we just don't know we don't country.
0: know and this is what i mean it's, it, it's all quite theoretical and livy is certainly running with the line i think that it's everyone like <laughs> it doesn't seem to be He's not making these sorts of distinctions as far as I can see. Mm. Um, but certainly the patricians are just absolutely devastated. The consuls are so concerned. They are convinced that the plebeians would elect really radical types like Canulius and Achilleus, you know, the fiancé of Waginia, the girl that was slain during the 2nd of December. They're convinced that this is going to just be a disaster for the state the consuls call on Jupiter Optimus Maximus to prevent the consulship from being so debased. I call on the gods to preserve the sanctity of our position in society and they also say that they're prepared to put their lives on the freaking mind man to stand wow. with this. Wow. Yeah. They are certain that all their ancestors would have opposed this with every inch and they never would have given them things like the tribuneship if they knew that the consulship was where this was going to wind up. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we would never have risked everything if we thought that that's what you wanted. I don't know, fair enough. Um, I think this is actually probably a good point to pause because mm. Dionysus have Alic- Can- he's got so much more to tell us about this year. But I think if we start going into it, this episode will be three hours long. Absolutely. So. <laughs> I think we, I think
0: we end at this point where clearly, it's a Harry and Voldemort situation. I'm really into Harry Potter right now. I've rewatched the movies recently. I don't know if you can tell.
1: I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> so
0: it is a Harry and Voldemort situation where it's like neither can live whilst the other survives. The Tribunes have to go, all the consoles have to go. There's no room enough for two. <laughs> yeah. All right, so Dr. G, that means that it is time for the partial pick. <laughs> All right.
1: This is the time where we get to judge Rome by her own standards and see just how good it was. So what this means is there are 50 Golden Eagles up for grabs spread across five distinct categories, which will rate out of 10 each. Can Rome surpass herself with the things that we've talked about so far? I'm not feeling
0: hopeful, but let's let's give it a shot. So the first category is military clout.
1: Well, we've, we haven't gotten to the military clout that may or may not be in this year. No, they're, they're pretty threatened at this
0: point in time, so that's going to be a zero. <laughs> uh, expansion. Expansion. Now,
1: well, technically... Mm. Well, they did take our day out. They did take the territory. Um, yeah, so, I think we have to give them some points for that.
0: Yeah, they, they took it in like
1: a they, weird way. They didn't win it, but maybe that's a better way to do it, because there's less loss of life. I
0: suppose. I f- I, I feel, feel like, like, that's like I positive. only want to give them like a two, though, because it's not, it's not good. It leads to revolt. Like It can't be good.
1: <laughs> Alright, two. Alright, All two. Right. Okay. Diplomacy. Diplomacy. I think uh, we have seen what we have witnessed so far is the Senate and the Consuls being abjectly terrible at diplomacy.
0: Yeah, and and also, and also the people, because it's apparently, I mean, allegedly, it's the people that decide to take the land. The consuls were against that, so
1: (laughs) everyone's terrible. Everybody's terrible at diplomacy. All right, so that's a zero. That's a zero. Okay. Uh, Wirtus. Wirtus. Mm, mm, no. Mm. You would need something that would allow you to show your bravery and courage as a Roman man. Yeah. Wouldn't you? Not seeing and, that. Um, no. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a zero for Wirtus. And
0: finally, the citizen
1: scroll. Well, I think that's clearly terrible. <laughs> <laughs> the citizens are working hard to try to make that better. and they have. That's true. They have made some decisions for themselves that maybe others have disagreed with, but expanding into Ardea is actually freeing up what could be public land. That's true. So, and they in a are, way... they are
0: being represented. I mean, um, Canulius, like Achilles, is mm. one of these tribunes that gives the tribunes a bad name, as far as patricians are concerned. <laughs> you
1: give tribunes a bad name. <laughs>
0: That's right. Ugh. Um, so, yeah, he's another bad boy um, tri- tribune, as far as the patricians are concerned. So, there is hope on the horizon. I want to
1: give them about a four for at least, like, they're yeah, working on it. They're right. trying hard.
0: All right, well, Dr. G, I'm counting on my little fingers here. That gives us a total of six golden eagles out of 50.
1: Wow. For
0: that... the end of 446 and part of 445. That is tough, Rome. <laughs> that really is. Well, look. Given that we are talking about a very difficult time for Rome, I think this is an appropriate time for me to say I'd like to dedicate this episode, if I may, to some people that I spent a very difficult year with but who made my life a lot brighter. They may be students of some type at a school that I may or may not have been teaching at last year. And I hope that they've enjoyed this episode and hearing about the fact that other people go through truly truly horrific years as well
1: as the people that live through 2020 2021 and maybe 2022 <laughs> yeah like, 2022 has not been off to the greatest start but we can live in hope <laughs> indeed all right well thank you very much for talking to me about rome today dr g it has been an absolute pleasure
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Partial Historians. We would like to extend a special thanks to our latest Patreon members, Sheila, James, and John. You too can support our indie podcast and help us to produce more fascinating content about the ancient world by becoming a Patreon. In return, you receive early access to our special episodes with a variety of guests from all over the world, and exclusive access to the occasional bonus episode. If you are unable to become a Patreon, there are other ways that you can support our podcasting journey. Give us five-star reviews that bring sunshine and unicorns to our world, spread the word by buying and wearing some of our merch, or support our collaboration with the talented Bridget Clark, who has been helping us to produce some artwork on Gumroad. Or you could just tell someone about us. Until next time, we are yours in ancient Rome.